reached our cruising altitude, it's time for the flyover. Welcome back to Flyover View, a member of the Heartland Pod family of podcasts, and a look at Heartland news from 30,000 feet. From the Gateway Arch to the Rocky Mountains, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today as we dive into the stories most impactful to you. All right, folks, let's begin today's show. How the Supreme Court ruling will gut the EPA's ability to fight the climate crisis. The Supreme Court last Thursday dealt a major blow to climate action by handcuffing the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate planet warming emissions from the country's power plants, just as scientists warn the world is running out of time to get the climate crisis under control. The opinion makes it more difficult to achieve larger-scale emissions reductions, says Andres Restrepo, a senior attorney for the Sierra Club's Environmental Law Program. To avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we need to do a lot more and move a lot faster. At the heart of the opinion was a question over the EPA's authority to regulate planet warming emissions from power plants, which are a huge contributor to the climate crisis. Around 25% of planet warming greenhouse gas emissions around the globe and in the United States come from generating electricity, according to the EPA. And coal, the dirtiest fossil fuel, powers about 20% of United States electricity. Emissions from power production rose last year for the first time since 2014, an increase that was mainly driven by coal use. Failing to regulate heat-trapping emissions will harm people and ecosystems worldwide, says Christina Dahl, a senior climate scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. We're already dangerously behind what the science shows is necessary, and the court's majority has made solving the problem much more difficult. Scientists have become increasingly urgent in their warnings that to make headway on the climate crisis, emissions need to not only be reduced going forward, but the world needs to develop ways to also remove greenhouse gas that's been pumped into the atmosphere in decades past. In a landmark report last year, scientists report that the planet is warming faster than they had previously imagined it would. As it does, they said, extreme weather will become more deadly. Water crises will develop and worsen. Food insecurity will grow and disease will spread. The Supreme Court said the Clean Air Act does not give the EPA broad authority to regulate planet warming emissions from power plants. The agency still has options to regulate emissions, but the court said that the law does not empower the agency to put a limit on emissions and force power plants to move away from fossil fuels and toward renewable energy. The Clean Power Plan was an Obama-era rule that set a goal for each state to limit carbon emissions while letting those states determine how to meet those goals. In many cases, ditching coal and natural gas in favor of solar and wind was the most economically viable solution. Shifting from fossil fuels to renewables is the most effective, efficient, and lowest cost way of reducing greenhouse emissions from fossil fuel-fired power plants. But by taking that tool off the table, the court has removed EPA's most effective tool for controlling greenhouse gas pollution from existing power plants. In its opinion, the court cut back agency authority by invoking the Major Questions Doctrine, a ruling that will impact federal government's authority to regulate in other areas of climate policy, as well as regulation of the internet and worker safety. It says that the biggest issue should be decided by Congress itself, not agencies like the EPA. How Wisconsin's honor system for removing guns from domestic abusers fails its victims. The attack came without warning, and as far as Jessica Jesse Ewers could tell, without provocation. It was early in the morning of October 19, 2020, asleep at her home near Cottage Grove, Wisconsin. She woke up to her boyfriend, James J.T. Budworth, beating her. He punched her, tried to strangle her, destroyed her cell phone, and threatened to kill her and her children. He also bit her once on the collarbone, once on the arm, where he tore off a chunk of flesh. Later, Ewers told police it wasn't the first time Budworth had attacked her. 
He drank heavily and abused testosterone and human growth hormones, and threatened to kill her regularly. Dane County Sheriff's deputies took him into custody, and when he was released four days later, there were conditions to his bail. He wasn't supposed to have any contact with viewers, use drug or alcohol, or possess any type of dangerous weapon. This last point was especially important because Ewers had told authorities that Budworth kept many guns at his residence that they shared. The conditions of his bail should have kept James Budworth from using those guns. They didn't. Two months after being released from custody, Budworth used one of them to murder Ewers before taking his own life. Ewers' five children were left without their mother. The year 2020 saw a record for fatal domestic violence in Wisconsin, with 58 people murdered, the most since at least 2000, according to a report by End Domestic Abuse Wisconsin. The 2020 data, the most recent available, also saw Wisconsin's highest ever recorded proportion of victims shot and killed by abusers prohibited from owning guns. These murders accounted for nearly a quarter of all victims. Wisconsin isn't alone in this regard. A 2021 investigation identified at least 110 domestic violence homicide victims shot and killed by abusers that are prohibited from possessing guns. There is no federal or nationwide organization that tracks these kinds of homicides, the investigation found, making that number almost certainly a vast undercount. In many circumstances, law enforcement lacks the authority to confiscate weapons, even when bail conditions like those applied to Budworth prohibit gun possession. Meanwhile, laws aiming to bar convicted felons from accessing firearms are riddled with loopholes. Compounding the problem, domestic violence homicides committed with guns are rising nationwide. In just the past decade, gun homicides by intimate partners spiked by 58%. Then, in 2020, such homicides rose by 25% compared to 2019, the highest numbers recorded in nearly 30 years. Experts cite a raft of data in favor of removing guns from people accused of domestic abuse. Above all, the presence of guns in an abusive situation meaningfully increases the chance of homicide. The bitter fight to stop a 2,000-mile carbon pipeline. There are three CO2 pipeline projects in early stages of planning in Iowa. The companies behind them have been contacting landowners in hopes of getting them to grant easements. But hundreds of people say they won't sign. Not only that, they don't want to see these projects go forward at all. Landowners from different Iowa counties, some who farm and some who rent to other farmers, have joined forces in an unusual alliance with indigenous groups and environmental organizations to fight against the pipelines. Iowa residents have been here before with the Dakota Access Pipeline, a $3.8 billion pipeline project completed in 2017. This new project is being proposed in the name of climate action. Carbon Capture and Storage Technology, or CCS, works by capturing carbon dioxide emissions at the source to prevent their release into the atmosphere. But critics are concerned that CCS is being treated as an easy fix for the climate crisis, especially by polluters who may rely on the technology to avoid strict emission reduction. In Iowa, the pipelines proposed for ethanol and fertilizer plants and any other agriculture facility that emits carbon dioxide would transport the CO2 to nearby states, such as North Dakota, which have the right kind of rock formations to store the gas. According to the companies, these projects would be able to store a total of 25 metric tons of CO2 a year. Part of what's driving support for CCS in Iowa is the ethanol industry's interest in self-preservation. Recent research suggests that ethanol is no better for the planet than fossil fuel and may even be worse due to the amount of farmland needed to grow corn and increased fertilizer use. According to one study published in February, ethanol is at least 24% more carbon intensive than gasoline. Emma Schmidt 
with Food and Water Watch says not only are we subsidizing ethanol, but we're also subsidizing the factory farm industry. Cheap corn is part of why factory farms can raise livestock animals cheaply, often in cramped conditions. Pipelines can cause other types of damage too. Iowa State researchers found that the Dakota Access Pipeline damaged soil stability and, two years after construction, reduced soybean yields by 25% and corn yields by 15%. And, despite the enhanced regulatory protections in Iowa, none of the landowners say they have faith that the company representatives will repair the damaged land. The risk of a leak also concerns critics. In 2020, a CO2 pipeline ruptured, exposing hundreds of residents and causing disorientation, nausea, and difficulty breathing. Before we hit the break today, I want to take a brief layover to highlight a few events of notice around Missouri this weekend and in the upcoming week. Of specific note, this evening in St. Charles, Missouri, there will be the Our Rights Rally at 6 p.m. located off of 500 South Riverside. The rally will focus on reproductive rights, and I personally fully intend to be there myself. I'm likely going to bring the recording equipment, too. So if you spot me, come by and say hello. may find yourself featured on a future flyover. Other rights protests of note are in St. Peter's this Saturday at 3 p.m. on the corner of the sidewalk by Canes. In St. Louis this Saturday, there's a pro-choice protest at the Old Courthouse at 4 p.m. Also on Saturday at 10 a.m., there's a protest for the overturning of Roe v. Wade in Springfield, Missouri at the Springfield City Hall. And this Sunday, there will be a large protest at Keener Plaza in St. Louis. I have it on good authority that there will be a number of protests concurrently statewide on that day, so look and see if you can find one near you. In the coming week, on Thursday, July 14th at 6 p.m., there's a pro-choice Missouri happy hour and trivia night at Wellspent Brewing Company in St. Louis. Friday, July 15th at 5 p.m. in Chesterfield, Missouri, is the West County Pro-Choice Nonviolent Protest at Fountain Plaza Drive. Next Saturday, July 16th from 12 p.m. to 10 p.m. is an all-day benefit for reproductive rights at Beer Station in Kansas City, Missouri. Coming up on July 18th, there's a Senate Candidate Forum being moderated by the League of Women Voters of Metro St. Louis. And honestly, there are likely more out there. If you're an event organizer or you know of an event you'd like to highlight that I missed, drop a comment about it in the tweet regarding this episode. Learn more at heartlandpod.com and don't forget, for full access to the Last Call episodes and the Heartland News blog, sign up on Patreon as a podhead today. And now, the lightning round. Lightning round. Voter registration spikes in Kansas and Missouri after row reversal. The nonpartisan election guide website vote.org recorded a huge bump in voter registrations in Kansas and Missouri on Friday, June 24th, the day Roe v. Wade was overturned. The website allows people from around the country to register to vote online. They explain state and local election rules. They provide key voting deadlines and more. The organization describes itself as the largest nonpartisan voting registration and get-out-the-vote technology platform in America. According to Vote.org Senior Communications Director LaToya Knighton, Missouri saw a 627% increase in registrations, and Kansas saw an even bigger jump. The site recorded a 1,038% increase. This may be because Kansans will be the first in the country to vote on abortion rights after the Supreme Court's decision, where they vote on a state constitutional amendment that would remove statewide protection of the right to abortion on August 2nd. 
Democratic committee adds a South Texas border district to its red to blue program. After a close runoff election and then a recount, the Democratic nominee for Texas's hotly contested 15th congressional district is getting some national support which she believes will help keep the border seat blue in November. Michelle Vallejo is a small businesswoman from Alton, Texas, and she says she welcomes the recent attention the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is giving her. The DCCC last week announced it was putting Vallejo in their Red to Blue program to elevate and highlight her candidacy ahead of what political watchers say will undoubtedly be a tough fight against Republican nominee Monica De La Cruz. I'm extremely proud to be added to DCCC's Red to Blue program. This means that we are a priority nationwide this election cycle and means that we will be getting the support, resources, and added training that I, myself as a candidate, and my team as a grassroots effort is going to need to hold on to this seat. Louisville woman gets vocal. When Jennifer Twyman originally sought help for her struggles with chaotic substance use, she heard about only two options. Sign up for inpatient treatment or join a 12-step program like Alcoholics or Narcotics Anonymous and go cold turkey. Those initiatives help a lot of people, but they weren't right for her then. But then a breakthrough happened. She learned about medication-assisted treatment and tried Suboxone, which is FDA-approved and used to treat opioid dependence. That experience led her to embrace an overall strategy called harm reduction, which aims to lessen the negative impacts associated with drug use. Twyman's 20 years of experience with substance use doesn't define her, but it's part of her journey she can draw from as she begins her work with a new organization known as VOCAL, Voices of Community Activists and Leaders, in Kentucky to help organize a movement to change policy surrounding substance use in her hometown and throughout Kentucky. Our system, she says, is set up to stigmatize, judge, and punish people instead of providing support, tools, and education. Through Vocal Kentucky, she hopes to help change that, starting with giving people space to have a voice. Twyman said she and her Vocal Kentucky colleagues will literally be hitting the streets. We're going to talk to people in encampments. We'll be going to talk to people in housing communities that are struggling, really all over the city. We want to go talk to the people that we are going to be building power with and see what the issues are, where we need to go first, and what we need to fight for loudest right now. Oklahoma to execute death row prisoners nearly every month. Oklahoma is planning to execute a prisoner on death row nearly every month starting in August through 2024. More than 42 inmates in Oklahoma are sentenced to death, according to Oklahoma's Department of Corrections. Oklahoma's current execution protocol involves administrating a drug cocktail to convicted murderers on death row. Several men on death row have claims of innocence, and some lawmakers have been looking into the case of Richard Glossop, who was convicted in arranging the murder of a motel owner in 1997. Oklahoma legislators announced that an independent investigation revealed strong evidence of the innocence of Glossop, who was sentenced for execution in September. Whew, 42 executions. A violence prevention program in St. Louis will be able to continue its work in the community thanks to funds from the American Rescue Plan Act. St. Louis Mayor Tashara Jones' office is committing $5.5 million toward community violence intervention programs. The federal funds will be used to connect people with employment services, mental health resources, and drug rehab centers. 
Seven Trump allies subpoenaed in Georgia criminal investigation. Seven advisors and allies of Donald J. Trump, including Rudy Giuliani and Senator Lindsey Graham, were subpoenaed on Tuesday in the ongoing criminal investigation in Georgia of election interference by Mr. Trump and his associates. The subpoenas underscore the breadth of the investigation by Fannie T. Willis, the district attorney of Fulton County. She is weighing a range of charges, according to the legal filings, including racketeering and conspiracy, and her inquiry has encompassed witnesses from beyond the state. The Fulton County investigation is one of several inquiries into the efforts by Mr. Trump and his team to overturn the election, and it is the one that appears to put them in the greatest immediate legal jeopardy. Well, folks, that's all the time we have this week. I want to thank you for joining us. If you feel you have a story that I should look into and possibly highlight on the show, please tweet me directly at Kev in Midmo or the pod's parent account at the Heartland Pod. This week's episode featured reporting and information from CNN, Concho Valley Homepage, The Guardian, Wisconsin Watch, Courier Journal, Kansas City Star, Raw Story, and The New York Times. Thanks for listening. Flyover View is a production of Midmap Media LLC. Learn more at www.heartlandpod.com or at the Heartland Pod on Twitter. See y'all next week.